0: risk tolerance, risk posture, is not a conversation that you have once a year when you're doing your, what if we have a data breach? Do we have a crisis PR for a mom retainer? It shouldn't be reactionary. It shouldn't be perfunctory. And it shouldn't be just to check a box. It needs to be a proactive conversation.
1: Hello and welcome to SaaS Half Full, the only show serving B two B SaaS marketers. I'm Lindsay Groper, President at Blast Media, and as always, I will be both your host and bartender today. I had a chance to sit down with Gina Hortazos, who's the CMO at LogicGate. They provide a platform to help companies manage their governance, risk, and compliance. And as marketers listening to the show, you may be thinking, "Why the hell do I care about GRC? Why am I responsible for risk and compliance?" Well let me tell you and let Gina tell you that the CMO and everyone throughout the organization should play a part in their company's overall risk management and risk profile. So make sure you stay tuned to the end where she talks about how to create a very special list for your department that allows you to play your part in risk. So grab a drink and join me as I speak with Gina about risk and compliance from the view of a CMO.
2: Hey, Gina. Welcome to SaaS Half Full. Hi, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me today. Of course, this conversation is admittedly well overdue. Uh, Gina has been a long-term blast media client for which we thank you and are forever grateful. But the topic we're going to be talking about today is a topic that should be top of mind for all of you SaaS marketers that are listening, Gina and I are going to dive into the role of the CMO in the overall risk and compliance strategy for a company. And you might be thinking to yourself, what does that have to do with me as a marketer? And that is why we're having the conversation. But before we dive in, I wanted to let you all know that I'm having a drink. We did send Gina a kit, but it is the first day that the office has been reopened. Is that right?
0: We're on day three of office reopening, but it's still very fresh. Day three,
2: which calls for celebration, but realizing that you don't want to be the person drinking in the office day three of it being opened. But we did send you something called the Winter Water Sprite, which makes me laugh. You said that it's because it's whiskey-based? It is
0: bourbon-based, and it actually features a fig syrup and some very interesting bitters and chamomile tea-infused whiskey.
2: There you go. Well, that, is a, that seems like a project, much more of a project than what I'm drinking, which is a vodka soda and lime, but out of a can. So I had to mix nothing. The only thing I have to do here is open it up and enjoy it.
0: I'm a big fan of the vodka sodas. I feel like all the hard seltzer is just Zima. Right. <laughs> which it went away the first time and there was a reason and now it's back. I'm like, isn't this just Zima? Gina, there
2: there are people listening right now that are going to say, Zima, what are they talking about? So for those of you that may not be in Gina and I's age bracket, youthful age bracket, Zima was a very popular, I would say, version of a seltzer. I'm not actually sure what kind of alcohol was in it. It looked like Sprite. I believe it was a clear malt beverage. Yeah, which is what seltzers are. It was basically the
0: White Claw of the 90s. But it didn't taste as good and it certainly didn't have the marketing or influencer cachet simply because the internet was nascent back then and influencers were not as uh, prolific as they are today.
2: No, but pro tip to make it taste better, we used to put a Jolly Rancher in the bottom of the bottle and then, you know, it was a thing. So, so
0: what was your favorite flavor of Jolly Rancher to drop in? Because I know what
2: mine was. Cherry. Mine was watermelon. Oh, we were close. Yes. And it actually worked. So, for those that might be a tad younger than Gina and myself, uh, now you know. I don't know if they sell it, but Zima. It probably works with White Claw too. Absolutely. I, I would think so. All right. Gina, I want to get into this topic. But before we do, I want to make sure that our listeners get a grasp on you, who you are, and what you do for Logic Gate. Tell us about your role and then also just quickly, what does Logigate do? Why does it exist? Logigate is a SaaS
0: platform that helps companies manage their risk and compliance programs. And I am here to, yes, lead marketing, but we are a post-Series C startup. And we're getting into scale-up mode. So building this business into even greater business is my jam. And I've been here for about two and a half years and we're having a great time.
2: And We've had a great time growing along with you. We have been along with LogicGate with every stage of that growth journey um, and now taking you into um, your next phase, which has been awesome. Uh, How did you land in B2B SaaS? Was this uh, something that you made a conscious decision to do or did you find yourself in it um, randomly?
0: Well, my entire career of about a little over 25 years now has been in enterprise software marketing in some way, shape, or form. I actually started my career in a software adjacent uh, market research space and my clients were all software companies and then I made the jump I actually one of my clients hired me to be actually the market intel person but this was back when all software was on prem this was pre-SaaS and you know in order to get a software update the person from IT had to go from desktop to desktop and install it on the computer and so I wound up in B2B SaaS when the company I was working for decided to modernize their platform from on-prem to the cloud. And for a long time, we were forecasting separately. We we're forecasting on-prem sales and we were forecasting cloud sales because the go-to-market is different. The implementation and maintenance is very different. And so I was actually kind of on the ground floor of that you know, and a lot of any big tech company that's been around for more than 10 years has gone through this transition. And then after I left that company, I, I spent time in subsequent companies, including Logigate, that were purely SaaS built from the ground up.
2: Awesome. yeah. And, and we've been around to see that transition as well. We, we've been working with enterprise software companies on the PR side from the beginning of our business 17 years ago before the SaaS delivery model existed. So it was fascinating, really. Yeah, it was. And we, so we totally went through this transition as well, which has been a, a crazy rocket ship to to get on board, certainly. So, when I had, uh, I, I literally got all of our uh, leaders at our agency together and I said, guys, I have a couple spots I want to fill on SaaS Half Full with clients and I said, what do we got? Like, all of our clients are thought leaders and what are some topics they're passionate about? And the suggestion that your team gave me is one that was really interesting to me because it made me pause and think when you said, talking about um, GRC or governance, risk and compliance, from the CMO's perspective, I think, okay, yes, I get it, phishing and GDPR. But it was like, no, 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 no. they gave me this whole talk track. And I was like, all right, if this is making me think differently, then this is likely something that's going to make others think differently. So I want to start with a quote that you wrote in um, another media outlet and start there because I want to unpack it. You said, it's a risk leader's job to keep conversations about risk moving, helping other business leaders find their own risk appetites, and it's not the one leader's job to define acceptable levels of risk for other lines of business. I'm like, as a marketing operator, why the heck am I responsible for this? Unpack this for me. Risk appetite.
0: Let's talk about that. The best businesses in the world are built by taking risks and not just by taking risk, by taking smart risk. And without a foundational conversation about what that looks like and alignment around what that looks like, you're just going to have people running around doing their thing and maybe not taking appropriate levels of risk, or maybe not taking the right risk, not investing the time to understand what data is needed to figure out if you should even be taking risk or not, and at what level. So one example is the SaaS startup constant conundrum of in order to get a deal over the finish line, it will require us promising a product enhancement down the road. I think every SaaS marketer who's worked in a startup environment has Listened to or been a part of these conversations. And it is at its essence a risk conversation. We have a product roadmap, we have finite resources in development and engineering. And in order to be, and that those resources are typically at 100% capacity. And they have very well informed roadmaps and sprints that they are working on that they've already decided were really important to enhance the business. A deal comes in. A deal has some potentially game changing ramifications in terms of dollar value, strategic partnerships. But as a contingency on that deal, we have to provide something, maybe not immediately, but maybe within six months or a year contractually, in order to be able to get that deal over the finish line. The product team goes is the reward of this potential strategic partnership or this potential strategic client worth? The risk that we would take to remove something from the current sprint, to remove something from the product roadmap in order to accommodate this. And if you don't have alignment, what that tolerance looks like, understanding the level of risk we're willing to take in order to drive the goals of the business and the tactics that we use. If you are a SaaS startup that is considering international expansion and you need to take some risks with, you don't want to violate GDPR, but as all of us know, that is a very vague law with very gray, vast amount of gray area. So in order to build your database, in order to be able to find those contacts, what does that look like? And so the conversation about risk tolerance, risk posture is not a conversation that you have once a year when you're doing your, what if we have a data breach? Do we have a crisis PR for mom retainer? And California just passed a new version of their CCPA law and we got to talk about that. It shouldn't be reactionary, it shouldn't be perfunctory and it shouldn't be just to check a box. It needs to be a proactive conversation that kind of is like, what is our DNA as a company and what are we willing to deal with? And marketing absolutely has a very unique seat in the organization. We're often a fulcrum between the external market the sales team, the customer success team, the product team. And so our unique lens actually gives us a very unique position to be able to facilitate and sometimes even lead these conversations. You shouldn't make your poor infosec person like knock on your door and ask you to think about this stuff and eye roll that you know you have to fill out a form or check a box or do an attestation. This should be a proactive conversation that we're having at the executive level on at least a quarterly basis.
2: For uh, later stage companies and certainly publicly traded companies, there you will likely have someone that is appointed the head of or the lead of risk and compliance. But when you think of more scale-up SaaS companies, there is likely not that person who has been appointed the lead for this. So for those types of companies, where does that live? That
0: usually lives with IT And, or if you have like operations or even a small legal team, like even if it's one person, we have a very small legal team. And especially in earlier stage companies, it really starts as a compliance conversation. We need to make sure that we are complying with certain regulations and policies so that we don't get in trouble or that we don't make our customers angry, violate something that, you know, makes our employees mad. So it typically does start as a more compliance conversation. But as you build the business and as you realize that a smart approach to risk and making each business unit leader really think about, because I have a p and I have a systems budget, I have a people budget, I have a programs budget, this, my sales counterpart, same. And anytime you have a business unit that has a P&L, they represent and contribute to a lot of the risk for the company. It isn't the risk management person who's actually generating risk for the company. It's people like me, people like you, it's people like our chief revenue officer, et cetera. And so where it typically starts is, yes, we have to take anti-bribery training. Yes, we have to take the annual harassment training. Yes, we have to make sure everybody signs an attestation form saying that they read the employee handbook and they know what you know the norms are of our office and our business. Yes, once we buy our first CRM system, how do we make sure that we're compliant with privacy and data rules? It starts there. But then it quickly becomes listen, our customers and our prospects are trusting us to treat them Properly, Our employees are trusting us to treat them properly. And so this compliance, like we have to obey the law or the rules so that we don't get in trouble, actually should be viewed as an opportunity to drive trust, to drive loyalty among your partners, your customers, and your team members.
2: So I'm hearing sales. I'm hearing marketing. I'm hearing IT. I'm hearing HR. I'm hearing essentially every line of business within the organization. And I'm also hearing elements that live far outside of of cyber risk, which is where, or legal compliance, which is where I think most people's brains go, mine included. So if we can focus specifically on the marketing team, what areas of risk uh, and compliance do marketing leaders need to be aware of that is affected by and can be impacted by the marketing organization?
0: Reputational risk, and it's not just if you have a data breach and your customers get mad at you and it winds up in some of these tech publications, but reputational risk could be if somebody clones your website and they take your domain name because you haven't bought that domain in XYZ country yet, and they're representing you in market and you can't figure out who they are. Do you have the controls in place? to be able to manage, to be able to figure that out and and manage to that. It is operational risk. And besides cybersecurity, besides the things that we know about, which are hackers and, and so forth, it's asset management, making sure that as we all got sent home for two years over COVID, that we were able to track not just the laptops, but all of the equipment. And if people were misusing them, you have to make sure that you're paying attention to that. It's things like incident risk. If someone gets hurt when they're in your office, you have to manage all that. There is strategic risk. Anybody who has operations in Eastern Europe right now has had to take a very hard look in the mirror to understand how geopolitical instability and issues, which sometimes you can predict and oftentimes you cannot, could affect your operations and other business continuity type of risks. One of the things that I hear a lot of marketers complaining about, not so much these days, but when I'm mentoring emerging VPs and future CMOs, and even some of my current colleagues talk about how they wish marketing had a more strategic seat at the table. And they weren't just seen as the lead generation machine or as the PR machine or as the XYZ. This is a way to have a strategic seat at the table. If you are paying attention to the risk posture of your company, if you're thinking about how to help build this business because you have a point of view and are driving alignment around what does a smart risk look like and what data and criteria do we need to determine as an executive team that we need to source and analyze in order to take the smartest possible risks and what our tolerance is in general as a company, like what's our DNA? If you're leading those conversations, you are right at the right hand of the CEO when that person has to go talk to the board. You are looked at as a strategic player that's building the business, not just the marketing lead who is leading the promotional effort. The reality is that if I talk to our buyers, if I talk to the people that are in risk management functions, that are in InfoSec functions, and even small companies usually have either outsourced or someone in their IT department is thinking about this stuff. And try, or in somebody in legal or what have you, and trying to get the business unit people to care, it's really hard to get the business unit people to care and pay attention to. And these are the people that are driving all the risk for your business. And when you're really small, one big mistake can really screw up your operations. <laughs> and if you're not proactively thinking about this stuff, the other thing too is that there's no reason not to, right? There's no reason not to have these strategic conversations. There's no reason not to do a quick search on. What does an enterprise risk management program look like? Even a simple one, even a small company can sit in a room and brainstorm for an hour on the different types of risks that they pose to the business Cause column one. Column two is, what are the different controls that you can put into place to make sure that you are mitigating or managing that risk? And then column three is, how often do we have to go back and look and make sure that we're mitigating it properly? It's kind of like, have you ever done a will? Yep. So years ago, my husband and I, you know, when our kids were, when we finally had a couple of kids, they're like, you really need to make a proper will. WillMaker pro is not going to do it. Right. So we sat down with an attorney. We spent four hours and he took us down the most excruciating line of questioning about like, what if you both die in a plane crash? What if your husband dies, but you're a vegetable? What do you want that to look like? And each really excruciating answer to every question, we baked into what we wanted, like who we wanted to take care of our money, who we want to take care of our kids, all that stuff. That's what a risk register looks like. You literally have to sit there and think about all the terrible things that can happen if you screw up your job and all the terrible things that can happen if you're CRO or if you're a legal person or if you're a developer, you know, is like talking to people in, in some community and information gets shared. You have to go through what is all the stuff we would could make mistakes on? And yes, it's a little painful to think about all things that could go wrong. But if you're not doing that proactively, you're missing an opportunity. And it's also a nice alignment conversation, especially if you have it in a group. But the residual impact of that is that we can go in front of our board with way more confidence. And we can talk to each other in a much more aligned terms around, is that deal worth it? Is potentially hiring more engineers to build this new product worth it? And what is the risk-reward quotient of that? And is, is that in alignment with how we want to roll as a company? Quite frankly, it surprises me that more executive teams aren't talking about risk more proactively. Part of it's because it's not that fun or sexy of a topic, but once you get a groove around it, it can be very rewarding and a major source of alignment. And like I said, giving marketing that strategic at the table because we have that more holistic lens.
2: I would imagine it is still very uh, reactionary for most companies is that it it takes a trigger for that to become a a real conversation. Uh, You did mention, you mentioned the board. How far up the chain does the uh, risk and compliance conversation go? Is this something that you're finding that the board is asking about, wants to know about, or is there, do you feel like there's an absence of acknowledging the importance of it, even at that level?
0: I believe that most boards have it as a item and it depends on what stage you're at. The risk that is posed by a seed C-level company is really more about, we've got a little bit of money. Are we spending it in the right way? Do we have the right systems in place and just the basics? At a bigger company like ours, as opposed to Series C, which is in you know, this, this hyper growth and scale mode, the risks get much more complicated. We're expanding internationally and we are expanding our product lines and all of that takes a lot of work and a lot of effort. And with each new person and with each new thing that we are trying to do, with each new growth lever we're pulling, it represents incremental and a much wider variety of of risk that we take on and determining what we're willing to live with. The board typically will not ask a ton of questions about it unless they don't think that you have a handle on it. If you do have a handle on it and you can represent that fairly at the board meeting, they'll be like, all right, yeah, sounds like you guys have it. Uh, But if you don't have it, they will start digging. And if you don't have the answers or they feel like you don't know them and have no plan to go get them, that's when their ears start ringing and they're like, they should probably really allocate some resources to this because the job of the board is to provide the governance." And to protect the interests of the shareholders, and if they think that the company is running a little bit, you know, loosey goosey with their, with their risk operations, that poses a threat, you know, potentially long term for the shareholders.
2: Yeah, uh, Carrie Lou Dietrich, we've had on the show, uh, who I know that you know as well. Um, she said something years ago that that has stuck with me, and that this really seems to apply across all functions with the board is that. They care less about you telling them all the answers. They just want the confidence that you do have all the answers. They have the confidence that you are the right person for the job to either have the answers or go get the answers, but they care more about that than actually you telling them all of the information and that you have all the answers. You said a term a little bit ago, uh, risk register. What is a risk register?
0: It's basically a catalog of all the terrible things that could happen if you screw it up your job. And each business unit, Does that brainstorming and we put the list together. So, marketing, it's like data privacy, reputational risk that could come from all manners of things that we could inadvertently or advertently do, geopolitical or things that are completely outside of our control, which makes it very difficult for us to market to our markets. And every department makes their list and then we aggregate it and we all look at it and we rate both the, if this happens, how severe would it be and the likelihood. So it's the severity and likelihood. So if something is really severe and also probably won't happen based on our best estimations and what we know about our business today, that's in one quadrant. If it's low likelihood and low severity, we don't worry about it. But if it's high likelihood and medium to high severity, then we know that we actually have to put some action plans in place in order to mitigate it. People don't think that it should be part of their day job, and it shouldn't be part of your everyday job. But this is something that's a conversation worth having. Um, and it's really interesting to look at the list from all the other departments to get a full gamut of all the things that we think might happen, that could happen, and then looking at all of the ones across departments, all the those potential risks across departments that would be both impactful, negatively impactful, and also, like, not outside the realm of possibility to happen because oftentimes the fixes for those types of things are cross functional if we all know what those things are then we can put proactive steps in place to have controls and have meetings and have an operating cadence around those particular risks that prioritization is really important because it obviously saves a lot of time and you're just you're looking at the things that are the most pressing
2: that makes sense and this is really good actionable advice and I want to repeat that the risk register is is a list of the possible scenarios or that you know affect the, the risk or the compliance that is within your department. It is not then how you would fix it. It is literally here's all the things that could happen that's under our department, the things that we touch. That's it. So it's not then how you'll fix it if it happens, it's just the what ifs. every department does that, you bring it together have the conversation and form your own little magic quadrant, uh, basically risk and figure out which ones do you need to put the plan on then. okay, So that seems like a pretty doable task for department leads. It is absolutely doable. And if you got your direct reports in a room,
0: they know. Your corporate comms person understands reputational risk, even if they don't phrase it that way, they understand. Like all we have to do is annoy one journalist and... They could write something nasty about us. Or if if one of your team members gets drunk at a company meeting and posts something stupid on social, like they know what that is. Your demand gen person and your marketing ops person understands the data privacy thing probably better than you do. And it would be good for you to hear from them the things that they might be nervous about, that they might think like, hey, I read this article and I really don't think we're buttoned up here. Awesome. So, yes, having that discussion and aggregating it at the executive level is important, but having those conversations with your team to say, "If you walked away tomorrow, what would it look like if you if you weren't in your job, are there things that you would want to like write a letter to your and say, "Hey, you should probably button this stuff up? Everybody has some stuff, and then again, you kind of look at the likelihood and severity, and you control for that,
2: yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I, I love the idea of this risk register uh, because it is is something that seems digestible and doable from the department level. Um, so if it's not something you all have developed or you're not sure, ask members of your executive team if you're not on um, the executive team or part of the C-suite. Start the conversation. As Gina mentioned, it can be a, a great way to show additional value as a team member to start that conversation around risk and compliance. Well, Gina, this has been Awesome. It really has my wheels spinning, even as an organization at Blast Media, thinking about reputational risk, thinking about operational risk, and having some bigger conversations that we, in full transparency, haven't had ourselves. Most people haven't. It's not just you. Yeah, but I'm I'm hopeful that this conversation is also inspiring others to do the same. Is there anything else that, that you want to tackle that we didn't have a chance to cover?
0: If you do have an IT or infosec person in your company, even if it's a party of one, Give that person some love. Send them a Slack and just say, you know, your job might be tough and I want you to know that I care. (laughs) I see you. (laughs) Yes, I see you. It does make sense to proactively make your risk register for your department. It is a simple exercise. Don't be afraid to bring this up at your next executive meeting. Like if we're not thinking about risk at all, or if you think risk is just the problem of your in house counsel, to keep you out of trouble, it's really about opportunity. There's a reason that the words risk and reward almost always are together. Because if you don't take any risk, you will not reap the reward. But if you take smart risk, that's how best companies are built. So think about it.
2: Awesome. Well, as we end every episode, Gina, I ask our guests if they have a favorite or signature toast to send us out. Do you have one to share? I spent some time
0: living in Spain and what they do in Spain is arriba, abajo, centro, adentro, which means top, bottom, middle, down.
2: Love it. I'm not going to try and repeat those words, (laughs) but I will certainly drink to that. I will raise my can vodka soda with lime and take a drink. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate the time.
1: Lindsay, it was great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to Gina for joining me on Sass Half Full. It was great to speak with her again. Hopefully we'll have a chance to see each other in person again soon. Last time was in October in lovely Tucson, Arizona. Hopefully you learned a thing or two. I know I certainly did. And if you'd like to get a cocktail kit of your own, we can help you with that. Head over to our partners at shakerandspoon.com forward slash half full, and you'll get 10 bucks off a cocktail kit delivered straight to your door. Appreciate the listen. As always, thanks so much and bottoms up.